because of your stupid refusal to cooperate, we are raising the ransom to... $300,000! Welcome to This Is Comp, a fun-sized version of Discord and Rhyme where we go through various artist compilations and talk about every single damn song. We're on Twitter and Instagram, really at discord pod and you can get early access to these episodes by signing up for our patreon at patreon.com forward slash discord pod i'm not on instagram but that's very cool to know i'm ben marlin and i'm here with mike defabio and john mcferrin we're on disc two of motown the complete number ones in this case tracks eight through thirteen but first, what is John's Motown history? What is my history? Yeah, so this is my first of the uh, Motown This Is Comps. I'm not really sure how that happened. Away I am. I got sick. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I got into Motown a little later uh, than my co-hosts and other people who have uh, been on this on the This Is Comp series did, um, as I did with most uh, pop and rock-related music. I was vaguely familiar with a lot of these songs. Um, you know, I knew My Girl, I knew Stop in the Name of Love, but I knew them more as wallpaper than <laughs> as something I would actually engage with or, or think of as a song that I would want to go out of my way to, to listen to. At least until my early 20s. In college, I started to get uh, pretty seriously into Stevie Wonder as uh, I talked a bit on about on the uh, Songs of the Key of Life episode way, way back when. And I, as I started getting to Stevie Wonder, I found myself uh, starting to slowly get interested in other uh, related acts, uh, both on the Motown label and, and otherwise. And what I found increasingly uh, through my 20s was that over and over again, as I started to get more and more familiar uh, with this music, every time I would listen to something from Motown or, or from Stax, I always... I generally found myself in a better mood than I had before I'd listened to it. And slowly but surely, I started going out of my way to listen to these things. And then I got uh, a Temptations compilation, a Four Tops compilation, eventually a Supremes compilation. And then I learned about this box set, and I kind of hit the mother load uh, within the last couple of years. And getting to know this set has just been a blast and you know many of the songs i realized after the fact oh wait i knew this better than i thought i did i've i've really come to enjoy this this set an awful lot my my first experience really getting to know it was actually on a on a road trip uh this past year um my my family uh loaded up into the car and we drove uh into indiana um got stuck in traffic for a long time but i didn't even really care because i was just having so much fun uh listening to all of this and yeah, and that's more or less my history uh, with this set. Well, thank you, John. And let's move on to the first track we're covering today. It's by the Marvelettes. It's called The Hunter Gets Captured by the Game. As it should be. <laughs> Every day things change And the world puts on a new face Gonna get to the chorus. 
The Hunter Gets Captured by the Game is a 1967 song by the Marvelettes, most famous for their hit, Please, Mr. Postman. It was written by one William Smokey Robinson. And for more about him, see every Motown episode we've done so far or any worthwhile history of pop music. The song reached number 13 on the Billboard chart, and since that has a one in it, it qualified for this box. <laughs> Actually, no, the song went to number one on the Cashbox chart which was the Robin to Billboard's Batman uh, without the cheesy puns or homoeroticism. I admire that Motown is doing something different here. It's a slow burner of a song, and it brazenly violates Barry Gordy's edict, don't bore us, get to the chorus. And there's room for that in pop music, and not every song has to be where did our love go. But the hunter gets captured by the game, keeps burning and burning, and I'm not sure it ever actually gets to that chorus. You can sort of identify it because they sing the title of the song, but otherwise, I don't know that I'd be able to pick it out. So it's all mood, and I do like the mood. It's, it's slow and sultry, and it's got the, the eerie, sustained strings. But without much melody or energy, this sounds like a Motown album track, and Motown album tracks are boring. They have the Motown sound, but not Motown-quality songwriting. They were pumped out to appeal to the listeners who heard an amazing song on the radio and assumed that if they bought the album, they'd get 11 others just as good. Huh. But they weren't. And by the time the listener figured it out, they couldn't return the album and Barry Gordy bought himself another solid gold Chevy or whatever. <laughs> anyway, my point is that this song sounds like a Motown album track. Uh, it's actually been covered its share of times in 1974 by Jerry Garcia. Anytime. Nineteen eighty by Grace Jones. Stay the same. The gets In nineteen eighty two by Blondie, where it was the de facto title track of their album The Hunter. In 1995 by Massive Attack for the Batman Forever soundtrack with vocals by Tracy Thorne of Everything But The Girl. Perhaps the song's proximity to the chart-topping seal classic Kiss From A Rose also qualified it for this compilation by Proxy. John, what do you think of this song? So, in let's say the first six discs out of this 10-disc uh, compilation, there aren't any tracks that I hate, per se, <laughs> but there are ones that I like a lot less than others. This is inauspicious. Yeah, and this one is <laughs> is kind of near the bottom for me. Uh, my main reaction, listening to it over and over, is, uh, this isn't as good as Please, Mr. Postman. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of sluggish. I like harmonica, but the harmonica here doesn't really do much for me. And I like orchestration when done well. And here it just kind of bogs down the sound for me. And overall, I, I don't hate it, but I end up kind of wishing it wasn't on the set. <laughs> Mike, what do you think? See, I, I like this one. It's not like a, a huge favorite of mine. You know, everything... You guys said is is pretty much accurate. You know, it doesn't really have much of a chorus. It's really a a mood piece. It's it, there's nothing in it to really uh, jump out at you. But I really like the mood that it sets. It, I think it's really effective as this uh, rainy day kind of Motown mood piece. And if it sounds like an album track, it I think it sounds like a an unusually good Motown uh, album track, rather than you know just you know one of the you know, 11 or 12 songs they just slap together to have something else on the album. I also noticed <laughs> you can really tell uh, that this is a Smokey Robinson composition, not just because of the melody and how you can really imagine him singing it, but also uh, it's one of uh, the songs uh, Smokey Robinson wrote with a really unwieldy title. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of songs by the Miracles, like uh, The Love I Saw in You Was Just a Mirage, yeah. and uh, When the Words from Your Heart Get Caught Up in Your Throat. Wow. 
It was, it's like he was trying to write songs with titles that couldn't fit on the label of the 45. But uh, <laughs> I, I do like this one. I think it's it's kind of a it, – it, it doesn't stand out, but I, I like it kind of hanging out in the shadows over there. I'm glad it's got a Defender. And I will say The Love I Saw in You Was Just a Mirage is a fantastic song. So oh, it is. He yeah. did pull it off there. All right. Let's move on to the next track by The Supremes, Love Is Here and Now You're Gone. Okay, now we're back to actual chart toppers. This was released <laughs> January 1967 and topped both the Billboard Hot 100 and R&B charts, as well as Cashbox, if you care about them. <laughs> Written by Holland Dozier Holland, of course, and in fact comes from the album The Supreme the, the Supreme Sing Holland Dozier Holland, because the team's name had become that much of a brand by this point. Remember, they were out charting Lennon and McCartney at this point. Wow. This is the first Supreme single and major Motown hit recorded in Los Angeles in a sign of things to come. This means the instrumentation is not by the Funk Brothers, but by L.A. area session musicians including some members of the Wrecking Crew. This was covered by Michael Jackson on his debut Got to Be There and Phil Collins in 2010. Hmm. Sure, I didn't why even... not? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I wasn't even aware of what Phil Collins was up to in 2010. He put out a, yeah, a, a an album yeah. of, of covers of old Motown songs just oh. for the hell of it. I didn't even know that existed. Huh. Most people <laughs> didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so... Love is here and now you're gone. Is it a banger? No. No, it is not. Das ist nicht ein Banger. But I like it. It's I had never heard this song until I bought myself a Supremes compilation. And in the context of all those hits, it sounds really interesting and different. Uh, Motown were really going in this sort of Baroque direction around this time, which I think was influenced at least partly by the left bank. Because... Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Four Tops put out a cover of Walk Away Renee later that year on uh, on the album this, that uh on the same album that has two monkeys covers on it. <laughs> I mean, the first thing you notice in this song is that harpsichord right front and center. And uh I'm a fan of that baroque Motown sound. They they went from one sound that was completely distinct from everything else on the radio to another one that was just as different. And uh the other thing that really makes this song for me, is those super dramatic spoken sections that Diana Ross does, sometimes punctuating them with this little gasp. And it, it walks right up to the line of being too diva for me, but it never crosses <laughs> it. And uh, for whatever it's worth to you, this is Eddie Holland's personal favorite Supreme song. Huh. Yeah. I really like the left bank comparison. You're right. And, it, and this is just different from all the other Supreme songs. It's it's yeah. not a radio song, or as you said, not a banger, um, but it still works. Like I never questioned why it was on the radio because the hooks are still good. The melody's good. The performance is good, but you're right. It doesn't have that kind of smash you in the face chorus. It's more subtle. Yeah. And as for the the little <laughs> that Diana Ross does, <laughs> I mean, Michael Jackson, I didn't realize he covered this, but he should have been paying her royalties every time he did that. Every time he did a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Matter of fact. <laughs> what amazes me is that you got this this pumping triple time bass line by James Jamer. Wait, it's not by James Jamerson. Right. If they played it out in LA, I guess it would have been Carol Kay, but it's a great bass line. And yeah. I'm amazed that Barry Gordy allowed anything to distract from the chorus and from Diana Ross. Uh so I'm impressed that he he let this out. 
But in any case, it's, it's another classic Holland Dozier, Holland Supreme song. I like the complex structure, the organ intro. I like that that diva spoken word thing. Well, you're right; it, it does kind of border on cheese, but but it's still really cool. Uh, I, I just think Diana Ross's vocal is is deeply emotional and really effective. Yeah, so it's another great song. That's not a surprise. Uh, these producers, this artist, hardly ever made a misstep, and that's foreshadowing. <laughs> I feel bad that I've been wanting to get onto these uh, Motown This Is Comps uh, for a while, and I'm starting off by being a buzzkill. <laughs> no, this isn't one of the better groups of songs. You had said that earlier, and yeah. I think you're right about it. I really, 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 really like the Supremes, and I really like the Left Bank. I'm not entirely sure that mixing the two of them was a great idea. Like, <laughs> it almost feels like mixing chocolate and a hamburger. Like, I, I, it just doesn't <laughs> what, you quite haven't done work that? for me. Not lately. Um, <laughs> I mean, the... The spoken word bits from Ross sound kind of silly to me. I mean, I, I do really like the the little dramatic uh, hiccup that she does. It's it's really actorly. It is. Yeah. It, it's it, it it's really well crafted. I, I like the idea of it. I, I do like the execution of it to a to a certain extent. But when I listen to it, I I have to I have to try really really hard to to appreciate it in a non ironic way. And, and just overall, the sound of the song just seems kind of cluttered to me. And now, let me be clear. I like it because I like the Supremes. It takes a lot for me to not like a Supreme song. But of their most famous songs, of the songs that would make a, a single disc compilation, it probably ranks near the bottom for me. Mm-hmm. And then just as an aside, it's it's not directly pertinent because the these two singles aren't... Um, you know, right consecutive with each other or anything. They're off from each other by about a year. It drives me insane that this made number one and My World is Empty Without You did not. Oh, It just yeah. drives oh, me yeah. bonkers that that is not on this set and somehow <laughs> this one is. Yeah, that's a yeah. great one. And uh, since it's since this is another song that's not going to show up on the set, but Mike mentioned it, the Four Tops cover of Walk Away Renee is great and is very different from the original because Levi Stubbs, the lead singer of the Four Tops, just... He can't be that wispy, wimpy, tender-hearted, broken-hearted guy. He like booms out, walk away, Renee, like like it's an order. Like Renee <laughs> was walking up, and suddenly she hears him and just runs away screaming. Um, but it's still a lot of fun, and, and he sings it great. It's just a different kind of walk away. The, the message is different. All right, let's move on to Martha and the Vandellas, Jimmy Mack. Another Holland Dozier Holland song, and I've gotten so bored saying their names by this point that I said them backwards that time. It was <laughs> cut by Martha and the Vandellas in 1964. It was released in 1967, and it went number 10 pop, number one R&B, thus its inclusion on this box. It's sung from the perspective of a girl who misses her man, the titular Jimmy Mack. She's lonely, she's being hit on by another guy, and she wants her man to come home. The reason Jimmy Mack wasn't released for three years after it was recorded is interesting and a little bit cynical. Motown initially shelved the song because it sounded too much like a Supreme song, and I guess they didn't want another surefire number one hit. Okay, but they finally released the song in 1967 because the Vietnam War was heating up. And suddenly it could be implied that Jimmy Mack, who for all we knew was away at Bible camp or just got hung up at work for a few extra hours, was actually away in Vietnam. And that's why Martha misses him so much. 
Suddenly, the song is topical without actually protesting anything, which is the Barry Gordy sweet spot. Of all the great Martha and the Vandellas songs, this is probably the most contrived, at least the central rhyme and chorus hook. I mean, if Martha had a boyfriend who was away and needed to come back, but his name was Colin or Anthony, I mean, do we still have a song? Uh, <laughs> that said, Jimmy Mack is still crazy catchy, energetic, and passionately sung. It's beyond likable. So you got to swallow the cheesy name and just still enjoy the hell out of it. I'm adding some notes from Rich Bunnell about cover versions. Uh, this was covered by Animal Collective in 2017. Their version sounds like Tears for Fears snorting cocaine in Disneyland's Tiki 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 Room, which is way worse than it sounds. And we're going to clip it. I'm a little afraid. That certainly happened. <laughs> Sung by A.V. Tear, the most annoying animal in the collective. <laughs> All right, Johnny Mac, what do you say? What this one reminds me of is how on, on, so on Stevie Wonder's album, Uptight, first album he did uh, after his voice changed and he was no longer little Stevie Wonder. He was a, basically a grown-ass man at this point. <laughs> at, you you, you set, hear the, the sounds of, of a grown-up, but then they just try to sneak in a handful of, of little Stevie wonder songs near the end, uh, hoping that you won't notice. <laughs> <laughs> so like you have, uh, uptight and you have nothing's too good for my baby. And suddenly you, and then near the end you hear, the contract on love. And it's it's really disconcerting, and it just doesn't sound right. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit. You listen to this, and it's just like, yeah, this is this is clearly not from the right time. Now, the other thing uh, for me personally, so I, I work in the world of of fixed income, and one of the things that I'm often hearing uh, is often at the forefront of my mind is uh, d- some different agencies that are associated with mortgages. So you have. Uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and Ginny Mae. And every time I see the Jimmy Mac, I, my brain wants to have it be as like the fourth one of those agencies. <laughs> and, and then I'm just like, no, I'm out. I can't do this in my free time. <laughs> Mike, what do you say? I like Jimmy Mac. It's not something I wouldn't place it with, uh, you know, something like Nowhere to Run or a Heat Wave. Or something like that. It, do, it doesn't bowl me over with awesomeness like that. But it's it's an awfully catchy, likable song. You, you know how it goes as, as soon as it starts. Nothing to dislike about it. Uh, I do, I think I prefer the cover version by Lauren Nero. Just because she speeds it up a little bit. And it's more mm. at the tempo that I hear in my head. If I were to replay Jimmy Mac in my head. <laughs> Jimmy! It's a, the Martha and the Vandellas version is always a little bit slower than I remember. And on the on the subject of, you know, the, the, the titular character's name, you know, really making or breaking the song, that just reminded me of there is a girl group version. I forget the name of the group, but they did they did a a version of, they did a cover of Gloria, but the, the name was changed to Melvin. <laughs> M-E-L-V-I-N Melvin <laughs> And it, uh, as you can imagine, well, it, it, it works just as well as you would think. <laughs> yeah. And I will add that the uh, the B-side to Jimmy Mack was a song called Third Finger Left Hand, which I always thought was really was going to be really cool and subversive because I counted my fingers in both <laughs> directions and they both times it ends up in the same one in the middle. And it's like, <laughs> this must be a kiss off of all time. I can't believe Motown put that out. But it turned out that they weren't counting the thumb. And then when you count three fingers over, it's the ring finger, and oh, he's going to put the ring on my third finger left hand. So it's not what I thought it was. But it, if you just look at the title, it seems like it would be cool. <laughs> it's the inspirational tale of someone getting married after losing their thumbs in a horrific accident. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to The Happening by The Supremes. 
The Happening was released March 1967 as the theme song to a cornball anti-establishment film of the same name starring Anthony <laughs> Quinn, and not the 2008 film by M. Night Shyamalan starring Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> the movie was that. <laughs> the movie was a flop, but the song topped the Hot 100 and hit number 12 on the R&B charts. And uh, Rich adds this note, the whole movie is on YouTube if you want to see what a creative pit Hollywood had found itself in by the late 1960s <laughs> before it was saved by violence, profanity, and nudity. Woo! Yay! <laughs> this is another song recorded with L.A. area session musicians, but despite the wacky new instrumental palette you're hearing, the songwriting is still HDH. So this is another song that I had never heard until I bought an album with it on it. And the first thing I thought was, this sounds like it would be the theme to a zany 60s comedy. And that's because <laughs> it was. Uh, the Happening stars Anthony Quinn as a retired gangster who gets kidnapped by hippies. And I I don't know, based on what I know about hippies, that seems like a little too much of a hassle. I've never seen it, uh, but those few who have don't seem to like it very much. Uh, <laughs> Shock. And I've, I've, I've seen the movie poster, it even... It, the song even gets top billing. It, it mentions the song at the top of the poster in huge letters before you read anything else about it. As for the song itself, I don't think it's great or anything, but I think it's fun hearing the Supremes do something that could be described as wacky. Like, they were always sort of synonymous with elegance. And this song sounds like they're going down a big twisty slide. And the slide looks like a candy cane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it starts off sounding like the Supremes are going to be doing the theme to a Bond film. And it sporadically <laughs> sounds like that later. But then it spends most of its time sounding like the Supremes doing the theme to the 1967 Casino Royale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not surprised to find out that it was, in fact, the theme to a silly late 60s screwball comedy. I really like this one. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yes. All right. This is my surprise. Yeah. Uh, somehow, just despite being much more bombastic than Love is Here and Now You're Gone, I feel like the song just makes a lot more sense and it feels less cluttered to me. Playful isn't really a typical setting for the Supremes. And while I wouldn't want them to make a lot of other songs like this, because then it might be too much. But in this case, I feel like it really suits them well. Yeah, so on the surface, The Happening is another zippy, melodic, insanely hooky, mid-60s number one hit by the Supremes and Holland Dozier Holland running out of breath. Uh, but there, there's something just different about it. Uh, you know, it's an HDH song, as Mike said, but part of the music was written by an outsider, Frank Duvall, who I believe was the, the music director for that film, The Happening. Um the lyrics address the usual lost love and heartache that was Eddie Holland's stock in trade and the Supreme stock in trade. But it's weird. You wouldn't know it to hear the record. Uh, you know, the nominal sadness in the words is completely belied by the upbeat, possibly even frothy mood of the song. And it was recorded in California, which makes it different from most other Supreme songs. Uh, although Wikipedia does claim that it was recorded in Detroit with the Funk Brothers. Uh, I don't really know. Um, it's got harpsichord on it. Definitely not a Motown thing. And despite being a number one hit, and you know it was, or we wouldn't even bother discussing it here, uh, it's not in perpetual oldies rotation, or at least they didn't play it on the oldies station in Miami when I grew up, and they played every other Supremes hit on there. That's not to say that it's a bad song. Uh, it's catchy. It's effervescently arranged, and it's wonderfully sung by Diana Ross. And it's easy to miss, but you get this dark minor key bridge uh, in the middle that sounds a lot more like normal mid-60s 
Supremes. But there's a thinness to this and, and kind of a glibness. It's not one of my favorites. It's, it's okay. All right. Let's move on to Stevie Wonder, I Was Made to Love Her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Made to Love Her was released in May 1967 and proceeded to spend four non-consecutive weeks across July and August at number one on the R&B chart. It topped out at number two on the Billboard Hot 100, blocked out of the top spot by Light My Fire by The Doors, which I like just fine, but not as much as this. (laughs) The songwriting credits for this belong to Stevie Wonder, his mother, Lula Mae Hardaway, Motown songwriter Sylvia Moy, and producer Henry Cosby. The lyrics for the song come from Moy, who was inspired by stories her parents had told her, in particular her mother, who was from Arkansas, hence the opening line, I was born in Little Rock. This is one of my very, very favorite teenage Stevie Wonder songs, and it's the main reason I signed up for this particular batch. Instrumentally, it's essentially the same melodic idea repeated forever, but what the song lacks in variety in the tune it more than makes up for in the kaleidoscopic variety of the arrangement. Aside from the enthusiastic guitar and bass at the core of the song, there is electric sitar, xylophone, strings, and probably other significant contributions from the Funk Brothers that I am overlooking. The song also features the triumphant return of the harmonica, (laughs) which Stevie had played regularly in his little Stevie Wonder persona, but had dropped when his voice changed. And this instrument would be a core part of his albums going forward. In terms of Stevie's vocal delivery, Cosby deserves significant credit here. First, he took Stevie to a Baptist church in Detroit and asked Stevie for this song to imitate the delivery of the preacher he heard there. This almost did the trick, but in order for Stevie to imitate a preacher, he needed a congregation. And he asked Cosby to find people for him to sing to so he could feel Hmm. their energy. So Cosby went outside and started asking anybody walking past the Motown studio to come inside and be part of Stevie's audience. And once the audience was large enough, Stevie could tap into the energy he needed to give the delivery he wanted. Uh, Some trivia, there is a dispute regarding who played bass on this. Carol Kay, part of the Wrecking Crew and mentioned earlier, insists that she played bass on this track, and she claims to have supporting documentation to this effect. However, the Holland Dozier Holland songwriting team insists that the bass was played by James Jamerson of the Funk Brothers, and Henry Cosby signed an affidavit to this effect. There was never any legal action regarding this, but neither side of this dispute ever conceded to the other. And finally, a few months after release, the Beach Boys included a cover of this on their Wild Honey album, with Carl Wilson taking the vocal part. And even if the backing vocals sound a little ridiculous, it is awesome. John, you stole my trivia there uh, because so I'll just add little bits to it. There's a fascinating article somewhere online um, about who played the bass line. It's by Alan Dr. Lix Slutsky, who wrote the book Standing in the Shadows of Motown, which is a biography of Motown bassist James Jamerson. And it, it inspired the documentary Standing in the Shadows of Motown that came out a while back. 
Um, and yeah, he talked to everybody who was involved with the song, Holland Dozier Holland, uh, Henry Cosby, some more producers. They all said it was James Jamerson. Uh, Carol Kay never played in Detroit, which is where the song was cut. It sounds like James Jamerson. Uh, so it, it seems it seems pretty cut and dry there. And, and I'm not even sure why she claimed to have played on this one. In any case, it's an amazing baseline. I, I guess it is something you would want to claim if you thought if you thought anybody might believe you that you played this one. It's a great song, as John said. It's got this expressive vocal. It's got strings. I didn't notice the sitar. Good catch, John. Uh, it's got that harmonica blast at the beginning. Stevie hits a high note at one point and he sustains it just amazingly. Uh, and the lyrics are simple, but endlessly relatable. Uh, except I wasn't born in Little Rock. I didn't have a childhood sweetheart. Basically, none of it applies to me. But the emotional content of the song I can relate to. And that's what's important. Uh, it's it's just a powerhouse. Mike, what do you say? Crap. No. <laughs> of course I love this song. It's... <laughs> I love that it's just the one part. There's there's nothing else to it. It's, it's just the one cycle of chords that continues for the whole song, and Stevie just is Stevie for the duration of the song. Uh, I didn't know that about him needing a, a congregation to, to feed off of in the studio, but I, I can totally hear that in the song. Like, he, there really is that energy. And I also, I never noticed the sitar or the, the xylophone either. Those completely eluded me. It's an incredibly simple but incredibly awesome song that uh, really only Stevie Wonder could really get away with. I think anybody else singing this song, we'd be like, is that, is that, you know, that's all the song is going to do? But when Stevie sings it, it's like, it's like the awesome outro to a song that you were waiting the bulk of the song to get to, and they just cut the song part. That's a great characterization. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and, really uh, quick. One other cover that's worth hearing. Um, on Jimi Hendrix's BBC sessions, there is a cover of this with Stevie Wonder on drums. Oh, interesting. Whoa. Yeah, I'd, I'd for- totally forgotten about it until I was I was prepping for this. It's a lot of fun. All right. Let's move on to the next now, song. Now, wait a minute. That's- There's another song that didn't make it onto this compilation that I don't think I would be able to live with myself if we didn't talk about and that is another Supreme song called Reflections. Hit it! Through the mirror of my mind Time after time I see reflections of you and me Reflections of Reflections only hit number two, and that's some nonsense. Uh, it, it, it happened, it came out at kind of a, a strange time for the Supremes. It, it was the first song credited to Diana Ross and the Supremes, because Barry Gordy thought he could get a, a bigger audience by combining two names that people already knew. And by this point, Florence Ballard was was out of the group, and that's a, that's a whole sad story by itself. Yeah. But... uh. So Mary Wilson actually sings alongside Marlene Barrow of the Andantes here. So you're getting something unique. Uh, This was kept out of the number one spot by Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe, which is better than Freddie and the Dreamers, at least. (laughs) But the reason I want to talk about this song so much is that, as I hinted at in one of the earlier episodes, this is the Motown equivalent of the Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows. Yeah. It's a much different song with a much more elaborate structure. Uh, Tomorrow Never Knows is just a drone. Uh, What they have in common is those electronic sounds that keep barging their way into the song. And matter of fact, this song might even be more adventurous than Tomorrow Never Knows in some ways. Because the first ten seconds of the song are nothing but electronic sounds. And those sounds weren't even made with a synthesizer. Because Motown didn't acquire a Moog until later in that year. All of those sounds were made with a test tone generator. So mm-hmm. there's there's a direct connection between this song and 
composers like Karlheinz Stockhausen and Edgar Varese who you know, needed to needed to make music out of these tone generators in order to get their ideas on tape. And the song itself is ace. It's got that cool fuzzy Wurlitzer electric piano, and it takes all these surprising turns that make it sound like Diana Ross really is lost in some kind of hall of mirrors, as even the greatest stars find themselves. And she sings it in this really icy, detached way, which just enhances the whole effect. It's one of the most psychedelic things Motown ever did, and it should have been a number one. Reflections. Okay, I'm done. Yeah, I, I just want to say I'm with Mike on this one. Um, you know, with, with the other Supreme songs we talked about in this set, I, it feels like they were just kind of dipping their toes into 1967. They weren't really committed to going all in like this song they went all in yeah and it's it's really great like all the like they, they really committed themselves to uh to taking their sound but just really garbling and messing it up but in a way that's really really intense and yet doesn't lose the the essence of the group i like the idea of it i like the idea of the uh, the hall of mirrors it just the idea of of the supremes refracted yeah uh, through, through 1967, and it really, really works for me. So I'm glad you brought it up. I didn't write notes in advance, so I have no idea what I think of Reflections by the Supremes. Uh, no, it's a great song, and I'm glad Mike included it. All right, uh, well, if, if Mike says it's okay, I'm going to move on to the last song, and that's I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Gladys Knight and the Pips. the baseline on this song it's incredible the gladys knight and the pips version of i heard it through the grapevine wasn't the first version to be recorded but it was the first version to be released and after its september 1967 release it reached number one on the r&b chart in december staying there for six weeks the pips were a family act that formed in atlanta in 1952 when gladys knight was eight and they originally consisted of Gladys, her brother Bubba, her sister Brenda, and their cousins William and Eleanor Guest. They began performing in local talent shows and landed a contract with Brunswick Records. They had little chart success, despite opening for performers on the scale of Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke, and Brunswick dropped them, at which point Brenda Knight and Eleanor Guest left the group. They were replaced by another cousin, Edward Patton, and a mutual friend, Langston George. And in 1961, the group recorded a cover of Johnny Otis's Every Beat of My Heart without having an official contract in place with any label. A local Atlanta label, Huntum Records, essentially stole the single off a scrap pile and got a distribution deal in place with VK Records. And this single eventually reached number six on the Billboard Hot 100 without the group getting a dime from it. Oh, Yeah. Fortunately for them, when they auditioned for Fury Records, the man who ran it, Bobby Robinson, signed them and immediately had them re-record a new version for his label so that they could at least have a chance at some money from the song. This re-recorded version also made the charts. And the group now rechristened Gladys Knight and the Pips, was now on its way. This group then released a second Top 40 single in early 1962 called Letter Full of Tears. The group hit a road bump when Gladys Knight left the group in 1962 to start a family with her husband, 
and the others discovered that there was little interest in a group called the Pips that didn't hmm. include Gladys Knight. Eventually, the group reunited, and in April 1964, the group released Giving Up, which hit number six on the Billboard 100. By 1965, Barry Gordy wanted the group for Motown. And while the other pips were eager to join, Gladys was afraid they would get overshadowed by some of the other artists he had signed. They signed in 1966, and initially Gladys was right. Even as they managed to have some low-level success, Knight felt the group was being treated as second-rate, in that all of the potential hits went to the Supremes, the Temptations, and Marvin Gaye. Well, they got the leftovers. Knight also wrote in her autobiography that after initially opening for the Supremes on their 1968 tour, Diana Ross had the group removed from this prime slot on the grounds that they were too good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The group's big break uh, came in 1967 with I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which at 2.5 million copies sold became the best-selling single Motown it had to that point, even if Marvin Gaye's version would later sell 4 million copies and surpass it. (laughs) Just as Peter Banks' time as Yes's guitarist has been overshadowed by Steve Howe's work as Yes's guitarist, or as Brian Cox's turn as Hannibal Lecter has been overshadowed by Anthony Hopkins' take on the same character, (laughs) this one has somewhat fallen between the cracks of history, but I like it a lot. In this setting, it's done as a muscular gospel song along the lines of respect, more than as something like the seductive and sensual version Marvin Gaye would make famous. And I think it's fun how the most iconic element of the Gaye version only appears here in a piano line that occasionally gives an extra sense of danger to the proceedings. A couple other points worth mentioning. First point, this is the first song on this compilation released after the Detroit riots that occurred in late July of 1967. We're going to get to that in more detail in a future episode, but just know that we haven't forgotten. Second point. In 1997, well after Gladys Knight and the Pips had disbanded, Gladys Knight was baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. (laughs) And in so doing, she instantly became the coolest Mormon celebrity, (laughs) beating out such stiff competition as the Osmond siblings and San Francisco 49ers quarterback Steve Young. (laughs) Uh, John, despite the yes reference, Motown is not prog rock. Just want to be clear about that. Cool, okay. Just keep telling yourself that. (laughs) This is barely the same song as the Marvin Gaye version. Uh, If you dig deep, it's got the same melody, and you can't deny that it's got the same lyrics, but it took a visionary producer uh, named Norman Whitfield to look at the same melody and lyrics and then take them in just two stunningly different directions uh, to where they're, they're almost different songs. I love how funky the backing track is. You got the jazzy cymbals combined with that straight ahead Motown drum beat. Uh, trivia, according to the aforementioned Alan Slutsky, uh, who's a great Motown researcher, the cymbals were played by first-team Motown drummer Benny Benjamin, possessor of the greatest name of all time. Uh, (laughs) Benny was in the throes of heroin addiction at the time and only had the strength to play the cymbals, and thus the main groove uh, was played by his understudy Uriel Jones. Sad side note, Benny Benjamin passed away just two years later in 1969. Back to the song, uh, you've got that rolling piano line underneath it all and another amazing James Jamerson bass line keeping it all moving. And of course, Gladys Knight is as authentic and authoritative as anyone can be. The pips, they're cool too. Uh, Though uh, the only part I don't like is where they go like, oh, oh, I gotta go. Like that's a little (laughs) on the nose, but I don't don't blame the pips. They were just following orders and that always checks out as an excuse. (laughs) 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 mike what do you think well what strikes me about this song after having heard you know the marvin Gaye version for pretty much my entire life and not getting to this one until pretty recently two things that really stand out for me one is that the the vocal melody is almost completely different (laughs) yeah when Gladys knight sings it and uh the other thing is that they don't even introduce that riff until a minute in, uh, a minute into the song, mm-hmm. it's it's like they didn't really know what they had. It's until an incidental they... part of the song. Yeah, and 
it didn't uh, they didn't realize what a what a killer riff it was until they went to make the Marvin Gaye version and they built the whole song around it. Well, except that the Marvin Gaye version was recorded first. Was it really? They, yes. Oh. Okay. I, I didn't know that either. I assumed it was in the uh, the Gladys Knight and then Marvin Gaye. Huh. No, there's a lot there's a lot of weird recording hi- history with an in- an intrigue involved in this song. Oh, so, so they made this the very interesting decision to really downplay that riff that's really interesting i i do like what a completely different song it becomes when when gladys knight and the pips do it it's uh, when marvin Gaye sings it it's this real just cry of pain and when gladys knight sings it she sounds more miffed than anything she's she really sounds pretty pissed off about having to hear it (laughs) having to hear it through the grapevine uh just shows you, you know, how many different directions a, a great song can be taken in. Of course, my favorite is is the Creedence version. I hoid it. <laughs> yeah, it's a really great one. One of our old web reviewing friends, Steve Knowlton, uh, pointed out in his review of the Creedence song that John Fogarty doesn't even always know what he's singing. He's just kind of singing what he heard Marvin Gaye sing, but he didn't know what <laughs> Marvin Gaye was singing. So he's just kind of he's repeating the same syllables, even though they're not really words. And it is a great version overall, too. I guess that's the end. So we'll roll credits. Bring over some of your old Motown records. What do you call this record with all these songs? Thanks for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. The opening theme music for this series is The Motown Song by Rod Stewart, featuring The Temptations. The closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and based on This Is Pop by XTC and uh, presumably fully licensed and approved by Andy Partridge, uh, with, with, <laughs> with new lyrics by Adam Smith of the Hector Collectors. You can hear Kenneth's music at Kenneth Crayley, that's K-R-A-Y-L-I-E, dot bandcamp.com, and his band Casinos at casinos.bandcamp.com, and the Hector Collectors music at thehectorcollectors.bandcamp.com. We'll be back with more Motown soon, and in the meantime, be ever wonderful.